0: Okay, so not think controversial Okay. So we discussed that Chachmah is uniquely capable of having the um, holiness of Hashem, the the, the 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 truth of Hashem present within it. Because Chachmah um has this um, quality of, of complete self-abnegation, right? complete self-surrender, right? There's no, Chochmah has no interest or drive or tendency or whatever we're want to use to preserve itself. And so it can be completely taken over with the awareness of, of the truth of Hashem. And this stands in contrast to Klippa, where Klippa's primary consideration is as he says, give, give, right? How do, I, how do I become enhanced? Feed me, right? How do I maintain myself? And so, the citra, the kedusha, the side of holiness, is defined by the presence of Chachma. And that, again, the presence of Chachma can be in various ways. We could be talking about the godly soul, which is, which is so to speak, Chachma in its essence. We can talk about the other aspects of the godly soul which are enlivened by that Chachma. We can talk about angels, which, are, which have some elements of Chachma um, which gives them an, a, an ability to to genuinely worship and serve Hashem. and then we have the citrus the, the akra the other side which is where is devoid of Chachmah. Um, and because it's devoid of Chachmah, right the the godliness is not present there and if we equate godliness with life right the absence of life is death so klepa is essentially dead now um, we, uh, the, 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 we spoke about this in the class, that, that it's better, and for the rest of this, this class, I think it's better to think of things much more in psychological terms than physical terms. So don't think of like a corpse, um, right? But think of a person who's dead inside, right? They may still be able to function, they may be actually have a lot of power. I gave the example of like a pop star, right, who may be right, quite dead inside, and yet they're, they have the power to energize you know, tens of thousands of people, right? So Klepa is like that, that it's, it's, it's really dead, um, but it is nonetheless created by God and does have a kind of a power to affect and to energize things. Right. Um, now, then we started talking about um, not just Klippa in the abstract, but the Jewish people themselves. So we're going to backtrack and go a little bit slow. We, we did this a little bit quickly, es- um, oh, not yesterday, um, Tuesday. So. We are on. Do you copy some page numbers on them? Um, yeah. So what? Well, no, eighty-two. So I want. I want to go back to eighty. Um. Um. It's about a, th- a quarter of a third away from the bottom of the right-hand column, after footnote eight. So are the wicked and transgressors of Israel. Right, so the idea is that that being devoid of Chachmah is synonymous with being dead. Right. Um, and again, you could be dead and not know it. What? Very good. But, Very good. Yeah. <laughs> so are the wicked and transgressors of Israel before they face the test to sanctify God's name? Right. So everything we just said about the difference between sitra achra, the side of, that is lacking in chokhmah, and the side of holiness chokhmah—that this—that that the sitra achra is dead because it lacks the life. Um. The, the the life quality of, of of God's presence, that is true of the wicked and transgressors of Israel, but that remains true only until what point? Until they're faced with the question of sanctifying God's name, Until the case of martyrdom, right? So, as of right now, right, where you have a person and this person um, is not living a life centered around an awareness of Hashem and service of Hashem. For right now, that's how we're going to read this. Um, and as such, they transgress the law. They, they do things that the Torah prohibits. They fail to meet the obligation the Torah places upon them. And so, in the, some ultimate sense, this person is dead inside. Now, they may not know that they're dead. Like, the pop star might not know that they're dead, right? Um, again, that's... don't. We have to remember that the psychological is just the analogy for what we're, you know, the true metaphysical state of things, okay? Don't, don't, don't equate them too much. But what happens when they're faced with the question of martyrdom, right? So the classic example, the crusaders come and they force baptisms upon the villagers, right? And this person doesn't even consider submitting to baptism, right? And, and, and allows themselves to be, to be brutally murdered, right? At that moment, they have come alive. Okay. Um, and that, again, would, it would help us understand like, why someone like Rabbi Kibo actually would be seek out martyrdom. Okay, Not that Rabbi Kiva was a sinner, but that that's... A, that's a, that so if we think of being alive, um, and here I want to stop and, and dwell a little bit about the notion of life. We're going to be talking a lot about being alive, and I made reference to it when we talked about the example of a pop star. It's very hard to really explain what it means to be alive. Um, and I think that should be our starting point. Because when we know that something is hard, the fact that we, have, we don't succeed fully in doing it, we can be more accepting of that, right? If something, is it, one of the things you should never tell as a, a student, if you're a teacher, a student who finds something very difficult, if a student finds something very difficult, is tell them that it is easy. Hmm. Because then what you're telling them is... you are stupid. Right. But if you tell them, no, it's actually hard. Now, it could it be hard maybe given, you know, their unique things? Then you're legitimizing the difficulty and encouraging them to put more effort into it. And it can even, right? Now, um, you have to balance that out just in the educational thing with if something is actually easy and the person is just being lazy, um, that's different, right? you have to differentiate that. Sometimes a person isn't succeeding because they're just not willing to put in the work. Okay, so what is life? So it's hard. It's hard to really get at what life is. So we'll we'll make an attempt. Um, this is a, a a classic way that Hasidim would describe what life is. Okay. Um, let us imagine you had a very um difficult um a very difficult day. Okay. Um you have a lot of different roles, right? So we we'll we we'll use a female because you're all female. Right. So you're a a wife and you're a mother, right? And you had say a difficult time with the children, right? The one child was misbehaving, another child has a doctor's appointment. Um there's there's um being an emotionally engaged and supportive wife. Okay. Um there's your own Personal growth that you used to struggle with, and you, you really had a hard day. There's a lot of demands and a lot of things that were very, very difficult, and you worked on them. And you—you know—you were—you—you were, you, you gave space for your teenager to, to to do something that they shouldn't do, so that they can learn from it. Even though you really wanted to intervene, and you were there for the toddler, and you and you—let's um, say you also have a job, and you 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 treated your, your co-workers and your clients with, with dignity and respect, even though you were stressed. And you were pleasant and supportive to your husband, right? And you made sure to try to really make brachas with kavod. Right? You, it was, but it's hard. It's demanding, right? Okay, Let's contrast that with a different day. Everything is easy. The kids are all out on vacation or somewhere. Um, you sleep in, you get up, you sit on the couch and have like, you know, Read read a read a novel or something you know like that and have some uh, something to drink and then you casually move on to the next kind of uh, pleasurable experience and that's kind of how the day goes right you know maybe you go out for coffee and just sit and enjoy the weather and it's nice alright okay at the end of those two days okay which one makes you feel like that day actually... The day was a day. That, that you actually lived a life. The first one. The first one. That's life. Life is not, is not a pleasurable experience. I don't mean it's not pleasurable. I just mean saying that's it, 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 immaterial. Life is, some, is, 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 it, life is something that comes together with, although it cannot be reduced to meaning, significance, Proactiveness, um, influencing rather than being influenced. Okay. Um, it ha- it depth. Okay. Now, life comes in many different forms, many different flavors. Okay. Um, so when we say, for instance, that the soul enlivens the body, right? It's not merely the soul gets the body to do stuff. Is that the body c- carries a greater value and significance? Than just being a lump of flesh, or 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 a biological organism, and that the body has a engages in its environment in a very proactive way. Those qualities are, are are facets of being enlivened, and ultimately, and this is this is what makes life very difficult to understand, is that ultimately, things gain their value by their relationship to life, and so it's very hard to explain what makes life valuable, and this is actually why. The more you think about it, life itself, in its ultimate sense, can almost be treated synonymously with God. I'm not going to dwell too much on that idea, but if you think about that, right? In other words, if you were to abstract out what it really what is life itself, right? right? That gives That's proactive and gives purpose and gives meaning and gives worth and, 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 and vibrancy to everything, but it, it doesn't need to receive it ever from itself, ever itself, right? And the soul is kind of like God in that sense. Although, again, we have going to have the soul itself itself enlivened. Okay? So, when, when the person is at the state of mysterious nefesh, they're really alive. When they're in this, when they're, when they're, when when someone is in in a state of wickedness and transgressing, they're really not alive. Now, they may have some things which kind of superficially seem like they're alive, we'll get to that later, but they're not really alive. Now the question is, how could that possibly be? Because, remember, every Jew, by inheritance, has a godly soul, which is enlivened by Chachmah, which contains the sense of the ain't-sof. So one should think that every Jew is intrinsically alive, right? In other words, if every Jew has a godly soul, and it's the Chachmah that brings life to everything, so then I should always be alive. How does it make sense that you have this person who is in a state of death, and then only at the moment of martyrdom do they become alive? To restate this again even more simply, it would make sense to say that there are two kinds of entities God creates, holy entities and non-holy entities. The holy entities are alive and the non-holy entities are walking death, fine. But you have a problem is that when you, say, you speak about a Jew, a Jew is somehow a godly soul, which is alive, and yet they're wicked and transgressor, which means they're dead. So how can the thing which is itself alive be dead? And you think about a body. So, well, a body is alive. That becomes dead. Yeah, but that's not really true. The body is alive in as much as the soul's in it. The soul leaves, and what happens to the body? It dies. But the soul itself doesn't die. So, if the chachma is still within each and every one of us, right? Then we should always be alive. And yet, we say that you only become alive at the moment of martyrdom, at the moment of sanctification of God's name. So, the reason for this is as follows. He said like this for the faculty of chachma which is in the divine soul, with the spark of godliness from the light of the ancient blessed is he that is clothed in it. So remember we said Chochmah is the sense of God. So the spark is the, the, the sense of God and the Chochmah is the thing that is sensing God, is as it were in exile in their body, within the animal soul coming from the Klipa in the left part of the heart, which reigns and holds sway over their body in accordance with the esoteric doctrine of the exile of the Shekhinah as mentioned earlier. There's a lot of things in that sentence, yes? Mm-hmm. Let us strip away everything and get at the core thing. What is the core part of that sentence? It's an exile. It's an exile, right? The, God, the Chachma is an exile. Okay. Now, it mentions the the esoteric doctrine of the exile of the Shekhinah has an idea. It mentions that it, the the, the, um, the is in the left part of the heart, and that holds sway over the body. Right? All those are details. But the key here idea is exile. So, let's throw this question out. I want someone to answer the question. What, is, what does it mean to be an exile? I want to deconstruct exile. What does it mean to be an exile? To be separated from God. No, I want exile just as a concept. So oh, don't okay. make it religious. To so be removed from your place of origin. To be removed from actually? your place. What? Or where you reside. To, okay, so 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 you so that's part of it. You are not in the in, in your place. Well, let's use let's use a let's use a word that covers all those means. Right, there is your home. Your home is where you belong. Your home may be also the same thing as your origin. Maybe one differentiate the two. It doesn't matter. Right, there's your home, the place of your belonging. Right. When you are not at home, you're in exile. Is that correct? Is it correct to reduce exile to simply the fact that you are not at the place that belong, the place of your home? That your truth isn't completely revealed, what you actually are. Okay. I want to talk about exile in the most concrete sense. When you're so, prevented from returning to your home? Okay. Now we've already gotten something that's a little sound more exile, right? When you are not at home, right, or whatever place you belong... And you are prevented from returning there. At that point, we might say the person is so. A person's on a business trip. I would don't think many of us would say. Well, they're in exile, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but if a person um, there's, I don't know, a revolution, and they know that they're on the wrong side of the revolution, right? And so they flee their country, right? And now they live in another country, right? And going back means risking imprisonment in jail, right? It might we might think of them as being in exile, right? Or we can think of ancient exile, right? Like, you know, the Babylonians come and, you know, schlep all the Jews to Babylonia against their will, right? Also, that might be an exile, right? So, kind of forcibly, right, under some kind of coercion, being taken from or prevented from returning to the place where you belong. Yes? That's exile. Okay. So... That's good for starters. I want to develop that, but then I want to add an important element, okay? That means you can stop being in exile in a very creative way. How could you stop being in exile in a very creative way? There's the obvious way, right? Like, you know, the Babylonians are defeated by the Persians. The Persians are like, Go back to Israel, oh Jews. Or, or They're called Judea at that point. Right? Go back to Judea, O oh Judeans. And build your temple to your God, right? And then you're not in an exile anymore. Seemingly. Right? What would be a more creative way of not being in exile? You decide you have a new home and you don't want to return? That's right. You cannot be in exile if you lose a sense that you belong somewhere else. Right? So in other words, like this, there's, there's Jews. The Jews are in exile, right? We're in exile, right? Um, there are basically two responses to Jews being in exile, because nobody really wants to be in exile. One response is to hope and yearn and pray, or even maybe proactively try to bring about the coming of Mashiach, right? What's the other response? To assimilate. To assimilate, right? To turn this state of being, the state of affairs, to place the culture into my home. Both of those are ways of trying to escape exile. Um, it's not my job to teach comparative religion, but one of the, the um, things that distinguished the Reform Movement um, prior to World War II, Reform Movement originally a German, was the idea that there is no need for um, to return to Israel, there is no need to have, a, a, you know, a future redemption, there's no need to have a strong association with the Holy Land because Germany is our home, Germany is our place. Um, the way they put, put it, we are, we are Germans of the mosaic persuasion, right? The Holocaust obviously messed up that way of thinking, right? It's kind of hard to think of yourself that way. But you see, so, so, so if, you, if, you, if you assimilate too deeply into the new place, you are no longer really an exile. Good? Okay. There's another way, though, to minimize your exile. Now I'm saying... There's there's, uh, There's another thing you do is to minimize exile. So let's let's think about this for a moment, okay? I'm going to use a historical example of the Babylonian exile versus the Persian exile. The Babylonians... um, Took the Jewish people, first the elite, and eventually the vast majority of the population, but not the entire population, out of the promised land, out of Israel, and took them to Babylonia. Okay. The Persians allowed and encouraged the Jews to return, although only a minority did. The Babylonians destroyed the temple. The Persians authorized and sanctioned its rebuilding. It. Very different, right? Were the Jews still in exile under the Persians? Mm-hmm. Why? Because it was on someone else's terms. It was on someone else's terms. But where was there more of an exile? The Babylonians. Babylonians. right? In other words, the more the, the coercive force, right, is imposing itself on your way of life, the more you're exiled. The more you are able to live as you would be without the exile, the exile is, is less. Now, that's actually actually dangerous in a certain sense because you know, if, you're, if, if you're living under a harsher exile, you may be more acutely aware of it and more willing to break out of it, whereas if you're living under a softer exile, you may be more accepting of it, right? So, for instance, one of the reasons why there's this sense of idolizing, say, the, the shtetl of, the, of Eastern Europe, right? Everyone knows what a shtetl is, right? You, you, you fiddle on the roof. Okay, so there's a lot of romanticizing and idolizing the shtetl. Now, why is that? Let's be clear: in the shtetl, people starved. Because at least they were still Jews. You're on to the. Want to it more, more like, sharply. Like because they they were able to maintain their like their religion because. They were basically like there was no other way. There was no way to assimilate because everyone hated them so much. Okay. They had like clear oppression. There's something else. There was there was a level of complete disengagement from the from the, from the non-Jewish culture. if you lived in the isolated. shtetl, what they were isolated. They were yes. There was a there was a, there was, a there was kind of a, there was there was a little. It was kind of they lived in a bubble. Um, and this was actually a tension between Eastern European Jews and Western European Jews. Western European Jews with all the answers didn't live in a bubble. Okay. Um, so, like, you know, like, there's something to be said. Like, we may not have food and the Cossacks might kill us and, like, da 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 But, like, but the rhythms of life are, 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 are within our little village, you know, in our little community are, 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 are they're Jewish. And there's this almost that, and, and, and there, there's an organicness to that. Now, I want to be clear that that is something that's overly romanticized, but it is true. And one of the diff- you can even talk about the difference between growing up in Israel in the religious parts of Israel, so not Haifa, but like um, Yerushalayim, like Beitar. Um, there's an organicness about Jewish life, not the same as a shtetl, but like for instance, you know, schools are off on the Jewish, <laughs> they, like like the the advertisements you just see have everything are all around, you know, Jewish things and and, and, and so right. But that's a kind of a bubble. You know, it's not the same kind of the the, the Statables very isolated. So for instance one of the differences we you can see in like Orthodox Jewish culture between say modern Orthodox and Haredi Orthodox right or ultra Orthodox is that a lot of what Harediism is about is trying to actively create a bubble. Artificially and actively create that bubble. I'm not saying it's good, I'm not saying it's bad. So there's a way in which you can minimize your exile by living your life m- more as you would without exile. Obviously you need the, 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 you, 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 you need the ability to do that. You need either, you know, the, 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 the extreme anti-Semitism and socialization created in Eastern Europe. Or you need the freedom to kind of create your own isolated community, like what you need. But then, if you go to, for instance, like think of the difference between Tsarist Russia and Communist Russia. Communist Russia, that freedom did not exist, right? And it's like if you exist in this territory, you must live, even in your private life, even in your own thoughts, according to our rules. Right. Right. Okay. Um, the the. You've heard of the term the melting pot? it says a melting pot. So one of the things, and then again, I'm just making observations, We get a sense. It's all gonna come back to the to the idea of the soul being an exile. The when Jews first came in mass to the United States, so that's the, the end of the um, 19th century, you know, late 1800s, in the first half of the 20th century. The idea of the melting pot was very very strong in the United States. And melting pot means what? What happens in a melting pot? Everything becomes uniform. So there are Jews who, for the first time in their lives, worked on Shabbos. Why? Because there's no option of not... What do you mean? In society, there's six days a week you work, and on the seventh day you don't, that seventh day is Sunday, and that's that. And there is no space for you to have your own little enclave of living life to a different tempo and a different rhythm, like there was in the shtetl of Eastern Europe. And it was... was Extremely difficult for many people to keep Shabbos. Now, there was a shift in kind of the overall view of way, the overall sense of things in the United States from the melting pot to multiculturalism. What's multiculturalism? You can preserve who you are. Right? And like, yeah, you do your thing and I'll do my thing. And as long as nobody's like messing up anybody else too much, there's space for everybody to have their own rhythm and their own thing, right? And, and that has been a tremendous thing. So a lot of the, you know, a lot, the, the physical oppression, you know, maybe didn't exist in the United States really ever, but the idea that we think of the United States as a place where it, where it's where, we, where people could practice Judaism freely and comfortably, a lot of that has with the idea that the United States' culture shifted to one of like it's okay to have subcultures and those should be respected. Okay? So exile has this element that th- the deeper the exile is, where you have this this contrast of you're really. Being made to live in accordance with um, this external coercive force. And at the same time, you have a very strong sense that this is really not your place. And it's the conjunction of those things coming together that creates a state of exile. Now, you can then have a kind of sense of being internalized exile. Um, so, for instance, we'll go, we'll build up to the soul, okay? Internalized exile, there was a cartoon called Dilbert. Has anyone ever read the cartoon Dilbert? If you haven't, this is going to be, unfortunately, no. only one person nodded their head. That sounds familiar. Dilbert is a comic strip that ran for a very long time. Um, and maybe he's still be writing, I don't know. Um, basic theme of Dilbert is Dilbert is a... He works in a corporate office as an engineer doing something. And every, everybody works in their cubicles. And it's basically, you know, the idea that modern work life is a kind of exile. Right? That you are living your life to the rhythm of somebody else 's unfathomable ridiculous rules that accomplish nothing and are nonsensical, and you have like no sense of your own humanity and like you know modern corporate office life as a kind of exile okay. but that 's more of an internalized that right and you can go deeper right you can see how you can take this theme now one important thing about it, about exile is that in a sense, because exile is that you're living life in someone else's, else's rhythms, you get, end up getting used by them. So let's go think about the original exile, like in Egypt, right? In Egypt, the Jewish people were enslaved and built cities for power, right? The Babylonians took the Jewish elite and used them to build up their, their own elite, right? To have advisors and ministers and things like that. Um, so there's an element of really participating and being coerced to participate and contribute to to the enemy, if you will, that's characteristic of exile. If you're just like, in a way, in a way, sitting in a prison cell is not the ultimate kind of an exile, why? Because within those limited constraints, you're allowed to kind of live your life as you see fit. But if you're in a gulag, you you spend your life in service of the enemy, right? Do you see how that's a deeper kind of an exile? That's a truer expression of what exile is, okay? So now, let's take all this together, just after fleshing it out. So you're, a person is in exile, or someone is in exile, right? When they're not where they belong, because of some coercive force, and they're being made to not just be, be passively present, but really really involved, really engaged, really being taken hold of by that coercive force. And so th- there, there's, there's, a, there's an element of involvement and participation in something which takes them away from where they really belong. And the more that that is the case, the more someone, as an individual or as a people, are in exile. So... What does it mean that the Chachmah is in exile? That's what it says, right? The Chachmah is in exile. What does it mean the Chachmah is in exile? Has the Chachmah lost a sense of what Chachmah really is all about? No. no. But does that sense have the power to go back to the way it's supposed to be? No. no. So the chachma has been overpowered by something, right? And now is the Chachma just passively dormant there being overpowered? Mm-hmm. No, what's happening? What? It's being used, it's being used right? right? The idea of being taken captive, taken prisoner, being used, right? I mean, that's most slaves in the West, how slavery comes about usually, right? Okay, so remember when we said that there's like this power, there's this energy, there's this sense of being alive to Chachma? Does that disappear? before, it's like, like the, no, that's an exile. Okay, so here's the thing, Um, that drive of chachma. it's not gone, it's not vanished. I'm going to use, I'm going to use an appropriate, a word here which I think is appropriate. It's being corrupted. Okay, and now I'm going to give a psychological example of this, okay. One of the things that happens is that very often people have um, desires and needs that are genuine, very, very real. Um, Let's say, for instance, the desire for acceptance and validation from your parents. That seems like a genuine, necessary thing for people to, to, to strive after and want, yes? Okay. Is it possible that that gets corrupted... And then that actually becomes the thing that fuels and drives a person to create conflict with their parents. No, it's not that they've lost completely any sense of the desire to get that validation, acceptance from the parent, right? But that has been taken over by something else, and has become assimilated into that, but not, but not, and, 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 and corrupted by that. And now that energy is actually driving something that doesn't make them them closer to their parent. It actually is driving further conflict with the parent, right? So the the fifth Chabad rabbi said said something very, very important. He said, a Jew needs to be extremely careful with everything they do. Because everything a Jew does, they're infusing with godly energy. When we lust after sin, we would like to think that that's just our evil inclination, right? That's just our Yitzhahara, just the animal soul. But what do we see? The 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 animal soul from the klipa, the left part of the heart, has taken who into exile? The chachma, the chachma. and the chachma we know is is a, is alive in this very very ultimate sense, right? So that that power, that intensity, that drive associated with the with the vitality of chachma is now empowering and driving the lust, the passions, and all the negativity associated with the animal soul. And thus, the chachma is in exile. So the thing which is supposed to, which is about life itself, right, is now actually energizing and fuelizing our march towards death, right? Which is quite tragic. But that's only the transgressors and the sinners, right? So we don't have to worry about that. Okay, so... Do we feel like things are critical to us? We need them? That our, li- like our whole very being... We do, do we have like almost a mysterious nefesh-like quality relating to different things in our life? Not everything, but certain things. Yeah? And what's actually fueling that is the Chachmah because the Chachmah has been taken into exile. Okay. It's been taken captive. Okay. There's a verse... Um, um, which says that Zion will redeemed with judgment and her captives with charity with tzedakah and, and the points point is that the captives, the captives are taken prisoner they're enslaved they're made to serve the enemy and there's this element of the, the, the drive of the Chachma the intensity of the Chachma of that thing that we see manifest purely and fully the way it's supposed to be in Masir nefesh. it didn't disappear it didn't go away it went into exile. It was taken over, and it gets corrupted. Right. Now, because that's the main point, even though there's this discussion of the animal soul coming from Klippa, which reigns holds of the body, and the left side of the heart, because those things are tangential, I'm not gonna go into them now, let me go back to them, I wanna keep going. For this reason, this love of the divine soul, whose desire and wishes to unite with God, the fountainhead of life, Blessed is he, is called hidden love, for it is hidden and veiled in the case of the transgressors of Israel in the sackcloth of the klipa, when whence enters then the spirit of Fa'ali to sin. As the rabbis have said, a person does not sin unless the spirit of Fa'ali is entered into. Him. Why is this called hidden love? Because this love is hidden. Where is it hidden? What does the text say? Where is it hidden? Where is this love hidden? So when you learn Tanya, and no one pays attention to the words, and everything's going to be said, it's hidden deep, deep in this inner part of your heart loves God. That's not what it says. What does it say? Where is it hidden? What? In the klipa. And then the is a fancy word, right? What's the manifestation of that klipa? In the sackcloth of the klipa, whence enter, there enters into them a spirit of folly to sin. So the mindset that sinning is okay. I like sinning. I enjoy sinning. I'm comfortable with sinning. I could do with some more sinning in my life. No. That's where the love is hidden. It's hidden in that. That's what it says, right? So it's misdirected? It's misdirected. It's called hidden love because it's like the, it's like the rebellious teenager who screams at their parents, I hate you, right? And someone says, you know... In that scream of, 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 of venom and hatred and disdain, inside that venom and disdain, is their longing for parental affection, which is true, right? Um, right but that, the, so in other words, it's not hidden like in some deep, deep part of yourself. It's hidden in the life that you're actually living, right? When a person lives a, a, life, a, a life which isn't really a life, a life of sleep, a life of death. The thing that, and with a mindset, which is called the Spiritified, that that's okay and that's acceptable and that's good and that's positive and they get into it. The love of Hashem to reunite with Hashem to the extent that you lose your entire being That totally. We were speaking about the last few classes. That drive is embedded in the life of klipa that the person is living. But it is so hard to see it that it's there. It's been so corrupted. It's been so covered over. It's been so distorted. It's called hidden. But it isn't gone, right? There is still on some level, if you were to dig deep enough into that, there's still the part of you that just wants to return to Hashem buried in all of that. So it's called the hidden love because it is hidden in, it's hidden within the sinful consciousness, the sinful mindset, the sinful desires and drives. It's been taken captive and exiled there. At what point did that power become stronger than the power of the Chachmah? I'm not going to answer that right now because there's more to this discussion. And then when we go through more of this discussion, then maybe I'll come back and answer that to the degree possible. Because there's actually a few questions embedded in that, but I don't think because we have a full picture, it's really worth getting into it right now. Okay. Right? So, when was the last time you saw a Jew act on the basis of their hidden love for Hashem? Every day. Every day. Every sin. Every Every sin. When was the last time you saw the hidden love of Hashem? come out in a pure, unadulterated form, uncorrupted? That's a different question. Right? Now imagine for a moment that you're a mature adult and you're dealing with teenagers for a moment, right? And you see these teenagers and you have the maturity and the depth and the 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 the, the, the um, positivity That you can kind of see through that—that all of that rebelliousness and all of that negativity and all that that anger and venom and all that manipulation and all of that really is being is is, it's all being empowered and driven by fundamentally positive things, yearnings for belonging and purpose and acceptance. How do you see those youth? Do you see them positively or negatively? You see them positively, right? But do you think everything's okay with them? No. You, so what feeling would you feel for such a person? Compassion. Compassion. How, do, how did Sadiqim look at, look at sinners? As evil people? Because inside that klepa mindset and those drives to sin and sinful behavior, what's exiled there is the chachm of the godly soul. Now, what's important to understand though is I'll use the example of teenager. Is the person that the mature adult is having compassionate on the same person that the teenager has as their own self-image? Yeah. Do you see what i like like the the who the teenager thinks they are is not the person that the the that this adult is having compassion, which actually requires a maturity on the teenager's part to accept that compassion, to accept that their own version of themselves is corrupted, right? So a similar thing, right? The, you know, the tzaddik comes and says to, to the sinner, you love Hashem, you believe in Hashem, Hashem is the most important thing to you, all you want to do is reunite with Hashem, right? And somebody may be very offended by that. You don't know me. I'm perfectly happy being a sinner. So the, 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 the yearning for Hashem, to reunite with Hashem, again we spoke about how this yearning is, is, is more absolute, more intense than any kind of normal human yearning, exists in every single Jew in a, in, a, in a tangible way, it's just been exiled. But because it's still there regardless, it's called the hidden love. In other words, the, the, reason, why, the, the, the reason why it's called the hidden love is not just to simply say that it's hidden, but that no matter how hidden it is, it's still there, it's still, and it's still active. It's just distorted, corrupted, veiled, and not seen for what it really is. Okay. Why is the people able to do that? Um, Two things. One, partially that will be answered in the, what we're about to learn, continuing in chapter 19. But that answer is insufficient. Um, and then the deeper part of that answer is actually answered, remember, at the end of chapter 29. There's actually two different questions here. One is um, about just the, the, the essential question of what gives Klipa power over Hoffman. In principle, and that's or or over holiness in principle, and that's answered answered in chapter, end of chapter twenty nine. Remember correctly. Double check. So, yeah, the end of chapter twenty nine, but the specific mechanics of how it works is actually addressed in chapter, in chapter nineteen, which we're actually about to learn. you know, to, to put it differently, it's like if you were to ask me how a car works, and I'm just gonna take like basic chemistry for granted, then explain to you how a car works, right? You know, with gas, you, you know, exp- air, light on fire, it explodes, creates more pressure, makes a piston, right? But then you could be asking me a deeper question, like how does like the fundamental workings of chemistry work, and that's like a different question. So the the underlying like deep metaphysical question, what makes Kleipa have power over Kadusha, is chapter thirty, chapter end of chapter twenty nine. The mechanics of what's happening here is chapter. Is in this chapter, and that's why I didn't want to ask the question of how does it first start. Because well, we first have to see the mechanics, but we have the question of how does it, how does it start? Okay, I'm going to stop now. Are there questions on kind of the, the 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 overall picture? Because we're gonna because we're gonna make it more complicated going forward, and I don't want to make it more complicated unless we're all more or less on the same page. Yes. So Klupa needs to steal life to live. So. So that's a very good observation. So klipa, klipa gets two sources of life. One source of life is what Hashem gives the klipa in order to, for the klipa to exist and to serve whatever purpose is created to serve. Um, and that is very minimal. And... Klippa can only really grow when it takes the side of holiness captive. Okay. And so the Klippa actually has a vested interest in getting a Jew to sin in a way that it doesn't have a vested interest in getting a Gentile to sin. Why? That's right. That's the basic idea. And by the way, the Klippa has a vested interest in getting the righteous to sin, more than a common person, or a higher level soul than a lower level soul. So, so, and, and this is why, like, if you read a lot of classic Kabbalistic texts, they kind of speak of this kind of, like, war of good and evil, and, like, trying to capture souls and this kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, but it, it is important to realize that, that there is a level of life. Now, the real truth is that it's only life. It's not truly life, right, because... Um, that klipa gets in order to exist, but that's not going to be called life in in the proper sense because there's no chachma really involved. And there's a whole discussion in Hasidus, how does God give over a godly um, power or energy to the klipa without actually really enlivening it because the klipa has no chachma to it? And that's a discussion for a different time. What we're talking about is now that we're taking for granted the klipa exists and is being, quote, enlivened, for its own purposes, and now it's trying to actually take the, the real genuine life of godliness found in the Chochmah, captor, captive and prisoner, right, and bring it into exile, and that does power it. Now, there is a parenthetical thing I should, should um, mention. Um, You know that there's like sometimes you can play games with people where like it doesn't matter what they choose, ultimately they're going to lose because everything is set up. The, the deck is stacked against them, so to speak. So it sounds like there's this war between Kedusha and Kleep, between holiness and unholiness, right? The, 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 the unholiness, the Kleep, and trying to take the side of holiness into exile and use its, use the energy associated with that godly life for its own purposes and strengthen itself at the expense of. The side of holiness, and the side of holiness needs to be rescued and needs to overcome the klepa and ultimately banish the klepa and blah blah blah. Right? Doesn't say like anything. Here's the thing: what happens if the klepa wins? Or as you know, what happens when the dog finally catches the truck? What happens if the klepa wins? What happens if the klepa swallows up enough of the kedusha? Never happens. It does. Well, let's just think about this. We, it's implicit in what we've learned, right? So. Our sages say the evil inclination doesn't tell you right away to go worship idols. It says first do this sin and then first do this. it says first do that it says first do this and, this and then this and then this and then this until eventually tells you to worship idols. Um, there's a interesting discussion said what's the first this but whatever. So you know you do this thing wrong and there's a little more an example more in exile. like in Egypt right first the Jews were like be patriots even Paro's building cities and like slowly you find yourself in. You know, but we've learned that if you push the godly soul far enough, right, eventually what happens? It out no, you push it in, 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 into the situation of like you, you know, worship idols. What does do the I godly know, soul, it soul do? Like, up? If Chakmul flares up. And then what happens to Klippa? It loses. It loses. Or let's do another example, right? Eliyahu tells the people, look, if you want to worship God, worship God. If you want to worship Baal, worship Baal. Just... Don't do this back and forth thing. Whichever one you want. You want to worship Baal? Go for it. Why? What's going to happen if the Jewish people like really like go 100% into the side of unholiness, into the side of the klippah, into sin? What's eventually going to happen? Right? People have mysterious Snefesh, people do tshuva, and then what happens to the klippah? It loses, right? So either it loses now or it loses <laughs> later. It can't win. <laughs> like, it's a really... Like, if you were to empathize with the klipa for a second, Hashem is playing a very nasty game with the klipa. Because, you know, it, 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 it keeps trying to... The thing that makes it stronger, ultimately, is its own undoing. Mm-hmm. Okay? Okay? There's a, there's a, there's a verse that... Um, I don't remember which verse it's from. It says, Shalat shalt adim verale." which means there's a time where a man rules over a man and it's bad for him. And the idea is that the, the, the two men, one is the man representing the side of Klippa, B'lial, the man who has no sense of fear of God, and he's dominating the man of holiness, which represents the side of Kedusha, like that the animal soul is conquering the godly soul, or whatever the case might be, right? However you want to think about it. But ultimately, it's the detriment that the Klippa ultimately suffers. Um, in, 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 they have a phrase called the Purik victory. You know what a Puric victory is? Pyrrhic victory is one of the wars that the, um, the, was fought in, in ancient Rome between the Romans and the, and the, and, and the um, people of Carthage. And the people of Car- if I remember correctly, the people of Carthage won the battle. But the cost of winning the battle was so severe that they <laughs> caused the, the entire <laughs> civilization to collapse. So it's like, yes, very nice. You won the battle and that made you vulnerable to complete defeat. So that's basically what happens with But Either it loses now or it loses later. It cannot ultimately win. Um, which, by the way, the reason why I'm getting into this, even though it's like not really the point of this chapter, it can't just relate to it, it's a very important thing to realize because it gives you a certain strength when you know that like, you know, I'm faced with a struggle and like, ultimately the side of good is going to win out. Right? Or as Mordechai tells Esther, right, you know, ultimately salvation is going to come to the Jewish people from somewhere. So you might as well get on board now. Why why go the long, difficult route if you're going to end up... The Klepa can't ultimately. I think it's an important message to have. Again, it's not the main point here, but the Klippa. Yes? And how is it possible for someone to be a complete Russia? And in metaphysical sense, you can only be a complete Russia temporarily. The problem is people die. But if you didn't die, <laughs> um, as the verse says, "Li Khmenonidah, no one is pushed away forever. Like eventually, right? Um, you know, the, 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 the one of the reasons not to go through the um, all the way to like go 100% investment in the worship of idols and bala, like Eliyahu says, it, it's entirely possible that your life would end before you get to the point of doing tshuva, and that would be bad because you have to like go through the whole afterlife process. So on a practical level, yes, someone could be a complete Russia and die in their state of wickedness and be held accountable, blah, blah. but in, but in some deep fundamental sense, no, that can't that can't happen. Um, all right. Okay, now if we're on the same page, so I want to go touch a few of the details that we kind of glossed over, um, not all of them. One of them idea is the idea of the exile of the Shekhinah. What is the idea of the exile of the Shekhinah? So, first off, what is the Shekhinah? Hashem's presence. Good. So, where is Hashem present? Everywhere. 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 (laughs) Let me ask you a different question. What does it mean Hashem has a presence? (laughs) Except for a second. Like, the first time you heard Shekhinah, you didn't know what the word was, right? So, you specifically the people that didn't grow up hearing the word Shechinah. If you grew up hearing words and you don't even realize you don't even know what they mean. But the first time, if you heard the word as a, as a, you know, a teenager or an adult, you had no idea what the word meant, right? And you asked, What is the Shechinah thing, right? And someone told you it's the. Divine presence. And then what happened? Oh. like, Okay. <laughs> so, I'm going to ask you, What does it mean, the divine presence? Okay, well, divine means having to do with God. So, that's, that, that's simple enough, right? Okay. mean God has a presence? What does that mean? Like, Think about it for a half a second. Maybe even two seconds. I really shouldn't say this because this podcast is online and it's entirely possible that somebody might uh, identify who I'm talking about. So, I'm debating whether how, how much to change how much to change no 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 so, so I know of a synagogue let's put it this way I know of a synagogue that had a rabbi um, and this rabbi was very influential in building up the synagogue and the community and eventually he left and he became a rabbi in a much larger community in a different city with a much larger Jewish population so he kind of like got a you know it's like eventually like you get to the you, you want to progress in life you want to move on right so it's like you know so they needed to hire another rabbi. And um, after searching long bar they they, they hired they they hired well, they, they tried to replace that rabbi, but it's like you, it's hard to replace somebody who's at like the top of like their experience and career in a certain thing with someone who's just starting out, right? That's kind of it's always like the, is that something also with students, right? Is that when you have students at the beginning of the year, they always seem much dumber. Because the immediate point of reference you have is the students from last year, but you're remembering them at the end of their education of the year, and you're making the, if you're teaching the same class. So it's a similar thing. Like you're hiring a rabbi. You want someone who's just like where the old rabbi was, but like you're not going to get someone the old rabbi was because someone who's like that is moving on. If, again, if, if people that think of the rabbinate as a career, you know, or something along those lines, right? So they ended up hiring the assistant rabbi as the main rabbi, um, um, and he's a very good rabbi. Okay, here's the thing. So, he had these two rabbis. One of the differences between the two rabbis is that the first rabbi, the one who left, right, moved on, he had a presence. Mm. The second rabbi doesn't really have a presence. Now, I don't mean that in any absolute sense, but for starters. But, so, I'm going to say that right, the old rabbi really had a presence. This rabbi doesn't really have a presence. It's actually one of the reasons probably why they didn't even th- they think of hiring him. It's only when they couldn't find him, like was like, hmm, you know, he's actually a pretty decent person, a good rabbi, or whatever, but he doesn't have a presence. So what is... So, I'm going to ask you not about the divine presence, but the rabbinic presence. What does that mean? The first rabbi had a presence and the second one didn't. It's like the ability to influence. <clears throat> I mean, if you don't have the ability to influence, you're a bad rabbi. And he's a good rabbi. You see what I'm saying? Like, like it's, it's something else. It... I'm not saying influence isn't part of it, but I don't want to reduce it to the ability to influence. The ability to compel. Presence might have that quality, but you might be able to compel without a presence or the other ways. Unseen energy that people can feel. And the influencers like they're. You're getting on something. So here's the thing. The first rabbi when he came into show, everybody knew he was in show. Right? He had this, as you put it, an unseen energy. There was a sense he is here. Moreover, right, there's, a, there's another interesting thing. So communities often have many different institutions. Like you could have a shul and you have a school and you have a mikveh, and you could have like a, you know, different... different and, and these institutions are all basically independent institutions. They all probably have their own, they have their own you know, uh, budgets and their own board and their own directors, principals, whatever it is, right? The first rabbi, he was in charge of everything. Does that mean he was officially in charge of everything? He was officially the director of all these institutions? But basically... All the other community institutions basically had a sense that, you know, he sets the tone and he sets the agenda. Why? Because he, ha- he had a very powerful presence. One of the things that happened when he left is there was a lot more independence. You know, the, the new rabbi is very much just the rabbi of that show, and it doesn't have the same kind of influence over the school and over the, the yeshiva and over the kol and over the... It's not, not saying one's good and one's bad. It's just different, right? There is this kind of exuding an energy which makes the fact that you are there and you are significant felt by others and it has an influence and it is compelling, right? But that's different from me like trying to persuade you, right? Or me, or, 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 or using threats of violence, right? You can, you, can, you can influence people in many different ways, Um. In Hebrew this is called Kavit A you know, person has a uh, I've translated as, as, as Honor But the way The way you know, the, 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 fact that the fact that Another person is a person They have a certain presence And that has a certain effect On other people right? So for instance You're not comfortable Acting in certain ways When other people are around Why? What are they going to do? Right? But that's because You feel their presence And there's a certain Something that comes about Because of that Okay. If you want to think of a very, very physical example, you think about you have fire, right? Even if you don't put your hand in the fire, just put your hand close to the fire, you can feel the heat, right? Mm-hmm. There's a presence to things, right? So what is the divine presence? It's not God. It's a sense of Hashem? It's that there's something, so to speak. Well, it's, well, so it's not... It's not... It's not a sense of Hashem. The, the heat it's not you sense the heat right It is something right that makes m- makes it possible to feel that hashem is there right? this rabbi walks into the room this rabbi is in the community and every and he exudes something that's very hard to put your finger on that everyone just feels like they have to take him seriously they have to they have to 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 um acknowledge him. They have to kind of organize things around his leadership because he's exuding some, something. And the other rabbi, he's very nice, he's very sensitive, he's a great Torah scholar. In, way, in certain ways, he's probably a better rabbi than the first rabbi, but he doesn't have that. He doesn't exude that in the same way. not why he doesn't have a presence at all. Every person has a presence of some kind or another. By the way, to give an interesting example, most people have a very egotistical presence. What do I mean by that? Most people, the stronger their presence is, the more you feel like there's less, so to speak, space for yourself. So some of the very powerful presence, okay, and they're not focusing on you. Okay, like there's a different thing that someone focus on you and they kind of legitimize you. They're just if a very person with a very, very strong presence comes into a room, there's kind of like a dampening effect on everyone else. Okay. There is another kind of strong presence which is much rarer. And this is the kind of presence that a tzaddik has. It was a major part of chassidus. I would say historically it was not a major part of chabad chassidus, although it was definitely part of chabad chassidus, although by, by that became much more of a central thing. A tzaddik's presence does the opposite. What does a tzaddik's presence do? Gives space for others. More than that, it's like a vacuum. A vacuum, right? right. What, what does a vacuum do? It sucks things in, right? So it doesn't just passively give space. It actually draws out. So what happens when you're in the Tzaddik's presence is that instead of, instead of there's like having a dampening effect on the person because there's just this powerful presence of another, their presence kind of has this, this, this pull, like a vacuum that sucks deeper and more beautiful parts and more positive parts out of the person. So the person actually feels more alive and more positive and more... Right, it has kind of an opposite effect. And again, those are in extremes. You can have, you know, on a, on a small level, this is true about any person. right? Um, I mean, one of the main jobs of, 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 of parents and teachers is to, have, to try to have some degree of that kind of a presence. That's very hard to do because it has to do a lot to do with who you are, not how, what not what you're doing. Okay. So going back to divine presence, right? So the divine presence isn't God. Divine presence is that there's something for lack of words, radiating out of God or being exuded by God that makes God, the reality of God, palpable and felt. Okay, and that's called the Shekhinah. Okay, fine, good. So how can a Shekhinah be an exile? Is it that you're feeling Godliness in like the wrong places? You feel ourselves too much? You started saying same. You were feeling, were feeling godliness. In places of unholiness? No. When was the last time you encountered the Divine Presence? Never. What? All the time. What's the problem? The Divine Presence is in? Everyone. That sucks. So, does the Divine Presence give you a sense of the Divine? No. It gives you a sense of that which obscures the Divine. The divine presence is in exile. What makes everything seem real and important and meaningful and pleasurable and significant and interesting is because those things are intrinsically that way? No. God. Right? But I don't feel that way about God. I feel that way about, you know, pizza and astrophysics. Because the divine presence is in exile. (laughs) (laughs) If the divine presence wasn't in exile, then what would happen? That, how do you put it that the invisible energy that's being exuded off of God to give you a sense of God would actually give you a sense of God rather than a sense of how how wonderful this other stuff is. So what's happening in the kind of absolute sense with the exile of the Shekhinah is happening in a microcosm in each and every Jew. And I will just now quote a Zohar, and we'll end the class on that Zohar, okay? The Zohar says this is the Holy One, blessed be. This is God. The community of Israel, this is his presence. So what do we see from this? That the exile of the Shechina and the exile of our soul are really interconnected things the being of Hashem is in the Torah. The presence of Hashem is somehow connected with our, our souls. And our souls are in exile. Hashem is in exile. This is what our sages say, that when we went into exile, God went with us. Mm. Good? Okay. When did this exile begin? When they ate from the tree of knowledge. Very good. at the beginning of the exile. First portion. So what we're going to now learn going forward is exactly what part of Chachma is in exile, what part of Chachma is not in exile, right? What happens that all of a sudden when you get to Monsieur Senefesh to martyrdom, all of a sudden, you know, what's going on there? We're getting into it and we're into the mechanics and through this we're going to get at that aspect of a fourth unanswered question, what does the how does this hidden love also contain fear? So that by accessing and living in accordance with it, we're actually living a life of both love and fear, not just love. Um, one thing, remind me so I don't forget to do this because it's not mentioned explicitly in the Tanya, one of the questions that's asked is if it's going to be both love and fear, why is it called the hidden love and not called the hidden fear? Um, that actually directly answers to Tanya, the Tanya that the previous Rebbe has an explanation and I want to make sure I don't forget to tell you. so. If we finish the chapter I'll tell you remind. Me. All right.